Turn your Bible to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 1, Dare to be Different. Daniel chapter 1. Dare to be different is a great lesson from this first chapter of Daniel. Everyone who decides to live as a follower of Jesus will face situations like the situation that Daniel faces this morning. He and his friends, as they faced in Babylon, God's people are to be obedient, even when being obedient is not popular or going against the cultural practices of the day. Jesus himself asserts, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, which leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Can you imagine a more difficult day to be growing up as a student than it would be today? Daniel's probably 14 or 15 years of age in our story this morning. Can you imagine a more challenging time to try to live for Christ? Congregation, the reality is that we are at war with evil forces. Those who would call truth a lie and a lie the truth. Our story in Daniel prompts a question. When our future leaders of this church leave our care, will they be formed in a faith that will be able to face the fire, the trial? Will they too stand strong like Daniel or will they cave in to the culture around them? You think about the cauldron of confusion in which our students try to live faithful lives for Christ today. Our culture tells them there is no absolute truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. There's certainly no absolute truth of God. They have to try to decide right from a wrong in a culture that calls the godless good. We live in a time of turbulent cultural currents. The media takes a dominant idea and promotes it. If it's adopted by a critical mass of people who want to believe it so badly, they will close their minds to all evidence otherwise. When such a cultural movement gains momentum, people will stare at the facts and filter out what they don't want to believe. And the more people who believe the myth, the more difficult it is for those who wish to counter it. In a spirit of euphoria, all warning signs are brushed aside. And before we know it, we live in a world today where actual facts no longer matter. The media, neither the right nor the left, actually report the news any longer. Rather, they're busy promoting agendas. Remember the good old days when the anchor of the nightly news would tell you who, what, when, and where, and maybe just a little bit of why? Instead, today, journalists write from a clear set of predetermined values, trying to convince you, persuade you as the audience to follow their worldview. You remember when Walter Cronkite, some of you are old enough, but considered the most trusted man in America because he tried to give you the facts and leave you to do a little thinking on your own. Even corporate America has joined in to the confusion. 
the Babylonian bandwagon, we'll call it this morning from Daniel. Absurdly Ritz crackers commercials are now pushing social agendas. I'm sitting one day watching what I think to be is going to be a commercial for a good snack cracker when a, a man in a beard applies lipsticks before welcoming in a young gay man and the opening vignette into a festive gathering of other LGBTQ partygoers. Oh, the commercial goes all the way. There's no hedging their bets. There's two gay men, there's transgender, there's non-binary extras. What and why? What? All I need Nabisco to do is to make a good cracker and sell me a good cracker. I've never known cracker makers to be very good theologians. Who do you think you are to tell us what to believe? G.K. Chesterton said so long ago, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not therefore believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not therefore believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. We're already there. One seminary president noted the Christian church used to be the meter, the standard for what's right and righteous. But now we turn completely on its head. And the, the moral revolution of our culture is so complete that now those who don't join it, the church is seen outside of moral decision making. And we're seen to be deficient, intolerant, harmful to society. How do we get here? How do we arrive in Babylon? A recent governor of one of the most populous states said in his state, in his state, a very populous state, there is no room for right to life people. There is no room in his state for people who hold traditional values about human sexuality. We live in a culture where those who hold traditional moral values or protect unborn babies are considered to be hate mongers. If you go against the current of this culture, you'll find yourself locked down and shut down and unable to communicate because you dared speak the truth with courage. Things were not so much different in Daniel's day. He, he and his friends were held captive to the chaotic culture of the Chaldeans. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. In verses 1 and 2, I outline it this way. Delivered into enemy hands. Delivered into enemy hands. Verses 1 and 2. Without any hesitation, the writer of Daniel immerses the reader into action the Babylonians are besieging the city of Jerusalem during the reign of Jehoiakim. It is his third year, which is a date marker of about 605 B.C. The Babylonians are expanding their kingdom and now they're attacking Jerusalem. And the fall occurs over three waves of attacks, 605 and 597 and 587 when it eventually falls. This is the early campaign in 605. But more important this morning than chronological questions are theological questions. You see, in antiquity, it was thought that nations rose or fell by the power of her gods. In other words, if Yahweh, the God of ancient Israel, has now lost out to Marduk, the God of the Babylonians, then somehow the Babylonian gods must be more powerful than the God of Israel. 
And so Israel, the reader, the one has this text in his hands, begins to question, how is it that the God of ancient Israel has been subjugated to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, lest you continue lamenting over the loss to an ungodly enemy, look at verse 2. And God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Three times in this passage you will find God gave, God gave, God gave. God has not lost the battle. God is punishing Israel. God is punishing Jehoiakim for the sins, breaking the covenants of God. God gave. God has a plan of redemption for his people. They're about to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. You can't be surprised by this. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 39 said nearly a hundred years before this event, during the reign all the way back to Hezekiah, listen to what Isaiah said would happen. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up and stored to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons shall issue from you, whom you shall beget shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. A hundred years earlier, Isaiah said it's going to come a time when Babylon's going to attack you. They will take your treasures to the temple and put them in their temples. They will even take your best young leaders and deport them to Babylon. Despite the Babylonian victory, God's doing the giving. God is in control. Second section, verses 3 through 7, trained for service. Look at verse 3 and 4. Trained for service. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence, and every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar was indeed visionary in the way he took over a nation. He would deport the very brightest and the best from that country and bring them to his country and try to change them, to use them as instruments for his own good. Well, there were qualifications that had to be met. First of all, they had to have no defect. They had to be perfect. Young men, probably age 14 or 15, without blemish. No physical faults if you're going to be carried to be in the king's court in Babylon. Secondly, they had to be handsome, good-looking, perhaps standing heads and shoulders above their peers like Saul. Third, they had to demonstrate intellectual ability, showing their intelligence and their understanding and their discernment. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to confiscate the best-looking, most intelligent future leaders for his own court. By removing the cream of the crop from Jerusalem, he was sure the city would be weak and the strength would be in Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was using a fourfold plan to brainwash these young men. First of all, he carried them off to Babylon. He removed them from everything that was holy in Jerusalem. Everything that reminded them of their citizenry of the holy city, he removed them, separated from the furnace of godliness. The king anticipated that the last dying embers of Israel would die out. Secondly, look at verse 4. He taught them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They would learn to speak in the language of Babylon, which would be Akkadian and Aramaic. 
Aramaic. They speak like a Chaldean. They read the Chaldean literature. Next thing you know, they will think like Chaldeans and not like Israelites. Thirdly, he was going to get them to compromise, have them to eat the rich food, the unclean food, the defiled food at the king's table, to drink the king's wine. The good life that Daniel was offered by the king, this fine food and wine, the good life that Daniel was offered by the king was intended by the king to wean him from the hard life that God had called him. The king offered Daniel and his friends a good life so they could avoid the, avoid the hard life to which God had called them to live. Finally, he changed their names. Look at verse 7. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. You see, their, their original names bore their relationship with Yahweh, and their new name bore their relationship with the God of Babylon. He changed their names. He would call them by a name that said they were not related to the God of Israel, but they were related to the God of of the Chaldeans. Our modern madness denies the most basic of biology between boys and girls. It turns a blind eye to murder through abortion. It pushes a new racism, which is a radical reversal of the colorblind dreams of Pastor Baptist Pastor Dr. Martin Luther King. Jim Dennison says, we've got a plan, and I see it much like Nebuchadnezzar's. Today in America, we normalize the behavior and then we legalize a behavior, and then we stigmatize those who object to the behavior. You normalize a behavior, and then you legalize that behavior, and then you stigmatize those who will not cave in to the culture. Quite thoroughly, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to teach these young men to think like Babylonians, to live like Babylonians, to worship like Babylonians. Well, the next section, verses 8 through 16 dared to be different. Look at verse 8. The first word is, but Daniel. When you read scripture and things are going down a wrong path, you look for that adversative conjunction, but Daniel. Look at verse 8 and 9. But Daniel made up his mind. He would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine which he drank. And he saw permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Here's the second time God gives or God grants is my translation, but it's the same word God gave over. Now God granted Daniel, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander and the officials. They were offered a three-year scholarship at Babylonian U. They could study with the very best of the teachers. They were gathered and brought to the table and offered the king's finest, fancy, rich food. It was food that had probably been sacrificed to idols. It was food that certainly would not have observed the Levitical laws of clean and unclean and pure and unpure. So to eat that food would deny his heritage as a Jew. Daniel's in a, a hard spot. He's offered the, the three-year scholarship to, to Babylon U. He's getting the king's table, the king's wine, a chance to show out and show what he can do, become a leader in this world power, the world power of the day. But Daniel, but Daniel, Daniel goes to Ashpenaz and says, do you think I wouldn't have to defile myself? 
You think I could just eat fruits and vegetables and not eat that rich food prepared by the king? And I don't know, says Aphanaz. He says, you know, the king, and Nebuchadnezzar was known to chop heads pretty quickly. If you guys show up too skinny and too weak, I could lose my head over this. I think you better eat what they've prepared for you at the Babylonian table. And then God gave, notice verse 9, God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the commander. Okay, I'll give you 10 days, says the commander. In 10 days, you eat your fruits and vegetables. You come back, we'll see what you look like. Well, after the time of testing was over, look at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who'd been eating the king's choice food. Daniel and his best buddies had the biggest biceps at Babylonian U from eating their fruits and their vegetables. They showed up, they looked good, they were strong, they were not weaklings. And so the chief of the commander says, this is gonna make me look good to the king. You keep eating what you're eating, guys. Eat those fruits and vegetables, and we'll see how it turns out for you in the end. Verses 18 through 20. Graduation day finally arrives. At the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and out of all of them, <laughs> Not one was found like Daniel or Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. Look up there at verse 17. Why are they so smart? God gave, there's your third gave, God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the officials, and now God gave blessings of wisdom and a double dose to Daniel as Daniel could interpret dreams and visions, reminds us of Joseph earlier in the Old Testament. God gave them wisdom. Well, it's time for graduation they all arrive at the king's door. They stood before the king. The food had made Daniel and his friends most physically fit. Ten times they were wiser, mentally aware than Babylon's best conjurers or magicians. In fact, the king was so impressed, especially impressed with Daniel. Verse 21 closes this saga. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Daniel's life from, was from about 620 B.C. To, to 535. He lived somewhere around 85 years of age. The whole point of telling you that he lived all the way to Cyrus is to say this. Daniel stayed true to God and Daniel outlived the Babylonian empire. He stayed true to God. He lived through the 70 years of captivity. He lives to the first year of Cyrus, who sets God's people free. Daniel outlives his captors by living God's way. There's a lot of rich theology in this chapter. What do we learn from this first chapter of Daniel? First of all, even when it appears this evil has won the day, we might later discover that God makes the forces of evil serve his greater purposes. Even when it appears to our eyes as if evil has won the day, we must remember Daniel 1 that God 
has plans and God has purposes. The ancient Israelites, as Jerusalem is falling, are wondering, where is God in all of this? Is our God weaker than Marduk, the God of the Babylonians? The answer was no. God was fulfilling what his own prophet had said in Isaiah 39, that in judgment, Jerusalem would fall. There's a second second thing I want you to see. God's judgment leads to mercy. God's judgment on Jerusalem led to mercy for Daniel and his friends as God blessed them and gave them wisdom and called them to live out for a godly life and a Chaldean culture, not to cave in to what everyone else was doing. Can you imagine how easy it would have been for Daniel and those three guys to give in at Babylon U, to do what everybody else was doing? To drink what everybody else was drinking, to eat what everybody was eating, to defile themselves and all the ungodly cultural things of the Chaldeans. But they stood strong. And the third thing we see, God looks after those who are faithful. Daniel refused to be defiled and God blessed Daniel. And finally, God is the giver of all good gifts. It's not the king who gives the good gifts. It's not the king's official who gives the good gifts. It's God who is the giver of all good gifts. Seems to me, God's people find themselves captive in Babylon once again. But this time we're exiled in our own homes as cultural currents are trampling down truth. Balking at basic biology, ensuring insanity, and calling Christians who are trying to love haters every time we have the courage to even ask a factual question. Every time we confront the chaos of those who deny the created boundaries of God, established when God spoke and said, let there be light. And male and female, he created them both in the image of God. Congregation, the church is ever going to put forward its best effort to raise a generation of Daniels who will dare to be different, a generation who will have the courage to live by God's word and refuse to compromise with the Chaldeans, and yet to live their life in grace and love. If you ever read the book of Daniel at any length, Daniel was not an obnoxious prophet or wise one. He was loving. He was a great example. He was so faithful and loyal to the king in all the ways that he could, but he wouldn't compromise his loyalty to God. He was actually liked and admired by the Babylonians as future stories in Daniel tell. We can't change the culture by being people of hate or being people of anger. Maybe we should be like Daniel, have courage Refuse to be defiled and live in truth and love, being obedient to the ways of our God. Let us pray. Oh God, these are hard days for your people. Somehow we, we watch the news and read the paper and feel like we're living in Babylon in our own backyard. God, I, I pray you've called this church to raise up the next generation of Daniels. 
The only future we have as a people of God is in our students and in our youth, preparing them for the day when they too will be carried to Babylon. They too will be tempted to compromise with the Chaldeans. But because of the rich heritage we pray they find here in following Christ and being with Christ's people, they, like Daniel, make a conscious choice to be different. Amen.